Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to this GCP bonus episode or emergency podcast, you could term it, concerning the news that broke uh, just on Monday, 17th of May, that the US Supreme Court had published its opinion on the CIC Services LLC versus Internal Revenue Service case. As this has been a, a high profile and much anticipated legal case for some time, I thought it would be best just to collect reaction from a standalone episode uh, from some of those in the know. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we will address the hows, whys and what next of this dispute and what short-term impact, if any, it may have on the 831B sector, the captive owners concerned and the service providers who support them and, and those people are on the, on the call now, which is fantastic. So to talk us through all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Osborne, Vice President at Risk Partners, Cassie Buckman, Legal Consultant, and Kevin Doherty, Member at Dickinson Wright. Regular GCP listeners should be familiar with Gary and Cassie, but I believe, Kevin, this is your debut on the Global Captive Podcast, so welcome to you. Thanks for joining us, Kev. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm going to ask Kevin and Cassie to provide us with the legal details and outcome in a moment. But first, Gary, uh, from a captive manager's perspective, I thought it would be good just to get some initial reaction from you, really. Is this the first bit of good news, do you think, that the 831B sector has had in, in a good number of years? Yes, there's no question. It's it's um, it's a good news story, but there's also some uh, little bit of hidden bad news in there you've got to be careful about. Uh, but it's nice to see the IRS get a little bit of a pull back on their ability to just impose reporting requirements without any kind of ability to push back or ask for proper public hearing and comments. So that was a big win. We should note, of course, that the wording includes what no tax benefit should accrue if the money is not really for insurance. If the insurance contract is a sham, which the affiliated companies have entered in only to escape tax liability, there should be no benefit. So we've now got that coming out of the Supreme Court. So that's not necessarily good news. But it's definitely a help that the IRS has had a little pushback on just being able to impose massive reporting requirements on people without us being at least able to just uh, comment and uh, contest it. So good news, but a little bit of bad news in that the court definitely was uh, on the side of the IRS against sham insurance transactions. Okay, that's really interesting, Gary. And I think I might try and drill down into that point a bit more later in, in this discussion, because um, I think that is very important. And I do have a few questions uh, about it. But perhaps, um, Kevin, maybe it'd be useful just to hear from you about, to give us a, a, a brief on what this case was really about. From my mind, it wasn't about our 831B captives, good or bad. It was about something quite administrative, wasn't it? So what was exactly examining? The, the case was basically a challenge to the reporting requirement of notice 2016-66, and it was challenged on a couple of different bases, primarily that they did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act and act according to what a normal government agency should do with notice and comment and opportunity for the business community to respond to a proposed regulation. Uh, the the trial court rulings uh, dealt with the something called the Anti-Injunction Act, and that is the only thing that the court really addressed uh, in a substantive way in their decision. And they ultimately said the Anti-Injunction Act is a very old law, which prevents lawsuits against the IRS unless you've actually paid your taxes. And the question then becomes, is this a tax? And of course, we argued that it was not a tax. And the, the court ultimately ruled that notice the notice requirement itself is not a tax, 
and that is very good ruling for us. However, the court also made a lot of statements later on that once you pay the penalty, the penalty itself may be a tax. In this case, they said it's not a reason for the case not to proceed, and that's a good thing. But there's a whole lot of uh, more detail that's going to come in the future. For example, this case was a case by a captive manager. This case was not a case uh, on behalf of a taxpayer. And there's some dicta uh, and some concurring opinions uh, that stated that the answer may be different if a taxpayer tries to pursue this claim that the notice was not valid. Regardless, it all adds up to at least a, a roadblock uh, or a speed bump, I should say, for the IRS. And it's definitely good news to win the case. I, I agree with Gary that the, the dicta that talked about sham transactions is not helpful, but I would argue it's just dicta. Uh, in other words, they, the court did not get into what risk distribution is and what, are, what a uh, insurance company should or shouldn't do to qualify as an insurance company. So that issue remains unresolved. And essentially, the result of the case is that it's remanded back to the trial court. Now the trial court, with the, the Anti-Injunction Act out of the way, will have to review it on the basis of whether or not the IRS actually complied with the Administrative Procedures Act. So uh, we, we've won a battle, uh, no doubt. We have not won the war. And I think uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens back at the trial level. Yeah, and, and and we'll come on to that in a, in a second, Kevin. Cassie, can you shed some further light on on what the Supreme Court did say in their ruling? Yeah, so I think it's important, um, as Kevin has said, they didn't ask for an injunction against enforcing the penalty under the notice. They were asking for an injunction against the notice itself, and that made the difference between the suit being barred by the Anti Injunction Act or not. But also, as Kevin said, the Supreme Court held unanimously that taxpayers' advisors have the right to sue to invalidate the IRS notices without having to violate the reporting requirement. But they didn't say taxpayers can. You know, the secretary did not prescribe regulations identifying micro-captive insurance transactions as abusive. Instead, they issued a notice. They didn't follow the formal rulemaking procedures that the APA or the Administrative Procedures Act calls for. So um, what happens next then, Kevin? Uh, I mean this in regards to the kind of the legal processes. Um, this case now essentially can can proceed at, at a lower court, uh, I believe. And this is I'm speaking as someone who's quite ignorant of these matters sat here in the English countryside. So what, what does that mean, Kevin? Where does this case go next? The essence is that it goes back to the trial court and we start all over again. And as Cassie pointed out, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic because we are all fairly confident that the IRS did not follow Administrative Procedure or the Administrative Procedures Act as they should have. And you'll hear the words arbitrary and capricious, and those are the, the, the buzzwords in this area of what we would call administrative law, which is one of the most exciting areas of the law, administrative law. <laughs> but administrative law is very important. It governs how government agencies, which are agencies of the government, not directly the government. Well, they are directly the government, but they're not directly elected officials. They are agencies of the government acting on the government's behalf. And the IRS 
is one of those. It is a government agency and it should be treated like any other government agency. And there are rules as to how government agencies can make law, essentially. They cannot do it arbitrarily or capriciously. They have to follow procedure. They no Normally, it requires notice and comment, which means you have to notify the public about the law or what you're intending to propose. And you have to allow the public to make comments as to how the laws or proposed rules might be burdensome or overly burdensome or or illegal or whatever. And they, if they don't do that, arguably, uh, whatever rule they make and whatever procedure they create is not a valid one. So we go back to the trial and we argue that the Administrative Procedures Act was not followed. Therefore, the notice is invalid. That's basically what we do. Yeah, I think it's important to point out as well that this isn't about what insurance is or isn't. So we they're not getting into the weeds of that. This is purely about can the IRS issue notices without review or not. That's sort of a double-edged sword, which was a good thing in a way for us because you know sometimes the captive insurance industry is small in compared in comparison to the overall economy or even in comparison to the insurance marketplace, and we don't always have the most clout. In this case, um, the issues were much, much larger than just captives. They, they really go to the heart of the IRS and how it operates. So that's why this case is so meaningful to everyone uh, in the, uh, the taxpaying universe and not just for captives. So, so what does this mean, Gary, then? I mean, my read on it is this, right? It, look, it's, it's a fantastic win for those who understand the kind of reach or overreach of the IRS. But surely the damage has already been done in a sense that captive managers and, and the taxpayers have already filled out, you know, thousands of notice 2016, 66. You can't undo that work. That work's already been paid for. It's already been done. That information, I believe, to, some, to almost all degrees has already been given to the IRS. So... What is the response, if any, or, or benefit, if any, to captive managers going forward? Unfortunately, very little, unless Kevin can tell me otherwise that they are not allowed to use the notices if they're held to be illegal. 99.9% .9 of the people have probably given this. The IRS knows who they're going to go after. It might encourage some new formations if the notices are not going to be required. It might. There's definitely been a damper on people. I've had quite a few clients who are, I would say, we're going to do a legitimate transaction, but the reporting requirements kind of scared them just being a little cautious about that. So it might allow for some legitimate ones to be considered going forward um, and that the IRS has had this pushback. But I am totally with you that it's not, it's probably a bigger win for the business community than it is the captive community as Kevin yeah. said in the tax side. And I'd just maybe Kevin, you're the lawyer more than me is, I mean, I assume they can still use the information they've already gathered because that would be the only time it would be beneficial. That's correct. I mean, the, the decision at this point did not address the legality of the notice itself. It simply allowed the challenge to the notice to proceed. So I would say the ultimate answer is to be determined. It is possible that a court could rule that the notice is invalid and therefore the IRS must destroy all of the information obtained by the notice. I'm not necessarily hope, well, I'm hoping for that resolution, but I'm not necessarily optimistic that's what we're going to get. But, but really, effectively, the IRS has this information anyway. They know uh, just by the tax returns who the 831B captives are. So I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, destroying the, all the filings would necessarily be that big of a victory, although it, it would certainly appear to be if that happened. But we'll just have to see what happens. 
I said the same thing, Richard. I mean, like, there's an awful lot of us in the industry felt this was an overreach and that they already had all this information. I mean, we have to file the 831B with the IRS. So they knew who had made this election. So I think it was a lot of us just felt it was sort of like a punishment um, and that they were asking for all this additional information. And and again, I don't think they even realized themselves how much it was going to be involved with all the different owners and policyholders. They knew who the 831B captives were. So exactly. The one potential here is that, yes, it was more just as CIC argued, the amount of hours and time and expense that went into doing this reporting, um, I think it was more bullying, to be honest, than it was beneficial to the IRS. Yeah. And so that's where this may be helpful, at least to push back on that front. It was designed to discourage people from participating in these transactions. And I think it was effective in that regard. There's certainly a, a good number of folks who have decided it's not worth it. It's too much work. We've certainly heard that. I had a number of interviewees, uh, Jeff Simpson in Delaware and, and Ryan Work at SIA said saying very similar things. Uh, Dan Kazala at Crow as well, that it, it definitely did act as a deterrent, uh, for better or worse, you could say, but uh, did act as a deterrent on, on the 8 foot on b formations over the past two or three years and may even, I imagine, accelerated uh, disillusions of 8 foot on b captives. Cassie, um, is there anything else in the short term that this ruling is, is going to change? For the captive world, I, I mean, I hate saying a hard yes or no, but I'm going to go with no. But it does open the door for others like the challenges to Obamacare, the Obamacare mandate, and others that are forced to file and maybe they're low income and they can't afford to object to these reporting requirements. I would also say it depends, and Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but if the IRS withdraws this particular filing, then the case is moot. You're right. They could withdraw the notice at this point in time and the issues would remain unresolved legally. And they could then go back to the drawing board and develop a new notice. There's now precedent, though, for tax-related service providers to sue the IRS. So Correct. there's potential opportunities to challenge the validity of all of the IRS notices, like you know, 2017-10, which had to do with conservation easement transactions um, that just have been heavy burdens on mm -hmm. all industries that it's targeting. But, you know, as, as we've said, especially captives. So the precedent is there and it's good. Is something going to happen right away? Maybe if the IRS withdraws the notice, but it seems like they've dug their heels in pretty hard. So let's, before we finish up then, um, I just want to go back to one of the very first points that Gary made. And I'm going to read, read again this, this line, which has got a bit of attention uh, over the last few days as a bit of a, a warning sign or, or a potentially bad news to the captive industry. So this is, this is the quote directly from the, the Supreme Court opinion. But no tax benefit should accrue if the money is not really for insurance. If the insurance contract is a sham, which the affiliated companies have entered into only to escape tax liability. Kevin, perhaps you can tell me what's wrong with that line. You know, again, as an ignorant person of US law sat in the English countryside, I read that and go, fine, you know, I don't want to see captives being used purely for uh, if they are uh, running an insurance contract sham. I mean, for me, the definition of the word sham is something I don't want to be seen associated with captive insurance at all. So why is this something we should be worried about? Well, I, I guess from my standpoint, I would say that's dicta. That did not relate to the heart of the case. It didn't answer or support the conclusion of the case. They simply said, 
you know, the IRS has a legitimate purpose in determining whether or not a supposed insurance company is actually an insurance company. And in fact, they've challenged all sorts of insurance companies, including Allstate, which is one of the biggest insurance companies that we know. And they have a legitimate role in doing that. Uh, Of course, you know, we would argue that they're not necessarily always doing that properly. And in this case, they're discouraging people from pursuing legitimate uh, insurance uh, operations and captives. I think most people in the industry would be very happy to have clear regulatory lines within which to work. And in fact, we've asked the IRS, many of the trade associations we are affiliated with have asked the IRS for clear guidance in this regard, and we, we've not received it. Yeah. Is, is that the concern, Gary, that the IRS's definition of what constitutes an insurance scam or a, or a sham insurance contract, it might be far removed from what us in the insurance industry or you in the insurance industry constitute insurance, right? There's there's not the guidelines which would define that term as has been used in the Supreme Court ruling. Well, I'm sure Kevin and Cassie can also co- contribute, but one of the ones that worried us was that they were in this notice, if your losses were not 70%, you had to report. And I can almost tell you if a captive is running a 70% loss ratio, it shouldn't be in business. <laughs> There are sort of tests like that that were just nonsense. Yeah. And unfortunately, insurance is such a little niche business. The courts are not really the best place to fight this. And so we're often concerned what's risk transfer, risk distribution. I mean, we've actually, again, in this industry, it sounds a bad say, but the pandemic is almost a blessing in terms of business risk against insurance risk. And that when another line the IRS would come out and say was, if you haven't had a claim for this policy in the last 10 years, it's not insurance. And that's probably the most nonsense thing I've ever heard in my life because so many people here will have home insurance policies that haven't paid ever. So is it not insurance? So the pandemic in some ways is also something we can go, here's an evidence of you know catastrophic losses that happen totally out of the blue. So the black swan event. So that's where the problem lies is that the IRSs do not like captives and they'll define something as a sham a lot more aggressively than the insurance industry or the, never mind the captive insurance industry would. And that's where we get concern. And so again, admittedly, coronavirus, that's a little silver lining, and that's going to help us argue that very odd and strange things should be insurable. And that's that's where the big contention lies um, in a lot of this. Obviously, I'm um, come back to things you've got to have proper actuarial and pricing and everything, but we still need, and that's where we've always said, same as Kevin, we're looking for some guidance, and it probably should come from the insurance industry rather than, or some more insurance expertise uh, than the IRS, because the IRS is just definitely antagonistic towards our industry. Well, I think that's uh, probably a suitable note to leave it on, uh, the IRS being antagonistic towards <laughs> our industry. I think that's probably fair to say. Uh, so I'd just like to thank, uh, at relatively short notice, uh, our friends Kevin Doherty, Gary Osborne, and Cassie Buckman for joining me on the Global Captive Podcast. We'll put a link in the in the show notes uh, to the full ruling uh and i'll I'll link to a few other articles i've spotted uh the last few days which might be of note to people to read up further on this topic as well so thank you kevin thank you richard thank you gary always a pleasure thank you cassie save the best for last thanks richard (laughs) (laughs) stay safe stay well and see you next time captives